tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. It's Monday, and there are wonderful readings, but oh, they're all wonderful. <laughs> so I remember I'm thinking of a humorous program that I won't mention. There's a, a minister on it who someone calls in and says, What psalm should I read for this? He says, Oh, they're all good. <laughs> I don't mean it that way. These are wonderful <laughs> readings. I, well, um, Bart, you you know who I'm talking about here. All right, let's go. Let's pray. Enough of this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us, by that same Spirit, to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And let's do it. Let's open the big book on the coffee table. People still have coffee tables, don't they? Coffee tables are very useful. They're just about the right height to put your feet on when when no one is no one is complaining. And never mind. Let's get to the reading. Isn't that what let's an take the gospel. For? Well, an Ottoman, but no, no, isn't that someone from the Turkish Empire? Uh, this was that the voice of my head just said, "Isn't that what an Ottoman's yes, for?" Yes, no, that was live. Uh, that was live. Good. I never know if he's live or just uh, a fig newton of my imagination. But yeah, no, yes, it's, uh, that's what an Ottoman is for. But I find that a pillow on a coffee table, provided there's no one who objects to my feet up on a coffee table. Works just fine. All right, let's move along. Luke, the fourth chapter, the 24th verse. First of all, let us look at the verse. No prophet is accepted in his own native place. Ain't it the truth? Um, that uh, if people say that you're not having much, I'm not having much success in evangelizing my family. I tell them about the gospel. I yell at them and tell them they should be going to church and, and they just don't listen. Do you think you're going to have more success than Jesus did? If Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, could not convince his human relatives that he was in fact the Messiah, of course, I don't think he was too concerned to do that, you're not going to have much luck either. I always say that when you can't speak Christ, you have to be Christ. And and so often, you know, we, we our families need to know where we stand on these great issues and on our faith and the moral issues of the day. But having made our stand clear, we do not have to try to beat them up and convince them constantly. 
when you can't speak Christ, you have to be Christ. So, you know, your family knows you when. Well, Jesus had that problem with his family. Well, he goes into the synagogue of this little town. Let me talk about Nazareth. <clears throat> there are people in Wisconsin who always get excited when I say this, but Nazareth means little shoot. And it was a town named apparently for the prophecy in Isaiah, a shoot will sprout forth from the root of Jesse. It's a messianic prophecy in uh, the book of Isaiah. Now, a wonderful scholar, Father Bargle Pixler, Pixner, Bargle Pixner, it's Pixner, uh, who uh, um, I had the privilege of, of, of uh, meeting Dr. Hahn a number of times, and uh, he pointed out Bargle Pixler's uh, uh, work to me. And this was, a, a, I believe, a Benedictine monk in the Holy Land, and he talked about the fourth gospel, the fifth gospel, the the Holy Land itself. <clears throat> and if you can possibly go to the Holy Land, it is worth doing. And uh, it's not a dangerous place. Believe me, it's quite safe. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience because it puts real meat on the bones of our, our faith. Uh, when, when we read the gospel, to see those places in your mind's eye is very useful. To me, one of the most amazing things is how small the Holy Land is, <clears throat> how these great events took place in a tiny little part of the world. But that said, Bargle Pixner says, uh, um, Father Bargle Pixar, I should accord him his title. Um, but Father Pixar says, uh, said, he's deceased now, that there were two towns where the old royal family of David lived. You see, the the Jews were taken into exile, uh, I want to say 580 B.C., uh, and by the Babylonians, especially the aristocracy. And they lived in Babylon. They weren't enslaved in Babylon. They were merely deported to Babylon. And there they they established themselves. And Babylon was kind of the New York of the ancient world. It was a cosmopolitan place uh, in, the Middle East, in the Middle East. It was uh, very sophisticated. And they were there for 70, 80 years. And when, when the Persians took over Babylon and said, um, actually, we should call them what they call themselves, the Iranians. When the Iranians, the Persians, took over Babylon, um, they they allowed people to go back and rebuild their 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 religious buildings and reestablish their their life in the lands from which they had come. You see, the Assyrians, who had conquered the northern tribe uh, of, of Israel, and the Babylonians, who conquered the Judean tribe tribes, the southern tribes of Israel, they were really the first ethnic cleansers. They would deport a population from its homeland and bring them to another place, uh, destabilizing them, removing them from their land and reasonably from their gods. Uh, but the Jews had undergone, the Judeans, maybe better put, had undergone a religious reform that the uh, Israelites, the northerners, never never experienced. Um, and so they were able to keep their identity and their faith in their exile. And so when they were allowed to return, they did, and they rebuilt the temple. However, the great majority of Jews, of Judeans, and at this point in history, we begin to call them Jews. They begin to resemble and... and uh, uh, practice their faith 
in a way that would be identifiable to modern Jews. So this idea of being a Jew uh, really took root, I think, in Babylon. This synagogue, I've shared with you this, this idea that the synagogue doesn't exist in the Old Testament. There's not one mention of a synagogue in the Old Testament. And you can be a perfectly good Jew without ever attending a synagogue. That, that Judaism is a domestic religion. It happens in the house. <clears throat> now, most Jews who are practicing go to synagogue. And, uh, but it's not, it's not required in the same way that it's required for us Christians to go to church. So, Judaism really took root and flourished in Babylon. Judaism was a way to be an Israelite without the temple. And, and um, the synagogue became the meeting place of the Judeans, of the Jews. Now, most of them, as I said, stayed in Babylon. You know, you, go back. We'll, we'll be there next year. We'll send money. Have a wonderful time. Right. And the same way that when... when um, uh, Zionists uh, went to establish the state of Israel, everybody was going to make Aliyah, which means to go up. Uh, they were going to go up to Jerusalem, and we'll be there next year. You go. We'll send money. And, of course, most Jews did not move back to the state of Israel uh, when it was established in 1949. <clears throat> uh, so, too, 500 years before Christ, people did not go back to the Holy Land from Babylon. All this is sort of prelude, the idea that the old royal family, the Davidic family, stayed in Babylon. The leader of the Babylonian Jewish community up until Islamic times, 500 years after Christ, was called the Exilarch, and he was always a descendant of King David. So uh, this, this Judean monarchy, the concept of the, of the monarch, continued in, in the Babylonian exile. And if you talk about the Talmud, which is the normative book of study for Orthodox Jews, it's the Babylonian Talmud. There's a Jerusalem Talmud, which is smaller, and it isn't considered as authoritative as the Babylonian Talmud. So Jewish life centered around Babylon as much as it did Jerusalem, even after the exile. Um, I think that that's a fair thing to say. However, in this, this is something that that uh, Father Pixner points out in the century before Christ, the birth of Jesus, the birth of Christ, there was more and more talk about Messiah. And that meant that this old royal family of David, which had been replaced by the Maccabees and then by the, the Herodians, this old royal family believed it would come into its own. One of their cousins was made king, well, life would go much better for people from the old Davidic family. And they began to return to the Holy Land, whereas the great majority of them seemed to have stayed in Babylon. And they settled in these two towns, the town of Nazareth, which was west of the Jordan, and the town of Kochaba, which means star. There's a prophecy uh, <clears throat> uttered by uh, uh, the prophet Balak. I think it's Balak. Um, the story of uh, or Balaam, not Balak. Balak was the king. Balaam, Balaam's prophecy about Israel in the, which is in the Torah, which is in uh, uh, the book. I believe the book of Exodus says that um, a star will rise out of Jacob. So one town was called the star. The other was called uh, the little shoot. Uh, not exactly the same as the town of Wisconsin, but um, these were these were settlements of this old royal family. All this is being said because 
It was Jesus' cousins. This town was completely composed of his relatives. It was Jesus' relatives who wanted to throw him over the cliff. He was claiming to be the Messiah, and his cousin said, You? The son of Mary? The son of Joseph? You're a nobody. And they were indignant, and they wanted to throw him over the cliff. If it had been a, a higher-ranking member of the family, perhaps. But who was this Jesus guy? Cousin Jesus? He's nuts. Throw him over the cliff. So this is Jesus' family. And they didn't accept him at all. And uh, uh, he, he, he's told him the truth. He says, don't think just because you're, you're Jewish you're going to be favored. God loves the whole world. They didn't want to hear that. Well, let's go back to the first story. The first story, I think you know, that Naaman, the uh, army commander, the king of Aram. Aram, that's basically uh, southern, southern and eastern Syria. Uh, northern Lebanon, that would have been Aram. It was a kingdom centered around Damascus. <clears throat> the Arameans, they, we get the word Aramaic, the language, uh, the common language of that area from it. So this is all going on in the in the life of Elisha the prophet, uh, who was the the successor of Elijah. Elisha, I guess you'd say it the way you pronounce it now, Elijah and Elisha. This was about, oh... 850 years before Christ. Uh, and the uh, Aramaeans were a great power in the area. Well, this leper comes and uh, he's heard from a, a slave girl of his who is Jewish, or Israelite rather, that, that there's a prophet in Israel who can cure him. He comes and he, he um, uh, says to the king of Israel, where's this prophet who can cure me? And the king of Israel thinks, oh, this is a pretext for war. And Elisha says, send him my way. I'll take care of him. And Elisha just says, bathe in the river, bathe in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman is furious. He doesn't even come out of the house to pray over him. Uh, um, you know, he just said, I just do that and you'll be fine. I came all this way and you're not even going to come out and say Hello. And, and jump around and dance around and chant over my leprosy. Not just go bathe in the Jordan seven times. And he's furious. And very tellingly, his servant uh, uh, says, uh, if he'd asked you to do something difficult and extraordinary, you would have done it. I said, of course I would have. Well, he's asking you to do something simple. And this brings me to my point. Jesus was too simple. For his relatives to believe that he was the member of the family that was chosen to be Messiah. Jesus was nobody. Naaman, in this story, says, I deserve better treatment than this. I'm somebody important. No, you're not. You're not, you're not all that. Just go bathe in the river. Well, he, God asked him to do something simple, and he did it. And so with us, we think, I want to do great things for God. Don't bother. God can do great things for himself. Do what God has asked you to do. If you're a married person, be kind to your spouse and your children. If you are not married, be kind to the people around you. God wants simple things. Mother Teresa said, small things done with great love are great things. And that's what these readings are saying, too. That, that Jesus, Jesus went right for the small. Uh, that, that was my beginning point. If When you go to the Holy Land, you're going to be amazed at how small it is. Jesus did this great work in a tiny area. And you live in a tiny area, and I live in a tiny area. And how many people do we really reach? That's what God wants us to do. If God has asked you to do something, do it. 
God asks us to do things all the time. We're always saying, oh, Lord, I want this. I need this. Have you ever thought about God praying? Ah, now God prays. To whom does God pray? God prays to you. Huh? The word pray just means ask. We're always asking God, I need this. I want this. God is asking us, be good to the poor. Be kind to one another. Love one another. I've heard it said that God is much too simple for the complicated human mind to ever understand. If God has asked you to do something, do it. Go for the small baby steps that that if you if you hear God and you really believe you've heard God say, I want you to start saying the rosary. Let's let's pretend that's what God has said to you. I want you to start saying the rosary. Oh Lord, I want to go to the missions and I want to do great things for you and I want to be I want to teach Bible studies and I want to organize the church and I want to create a all I would like you to do is say the rosary. But I want to do all this stuff for you, Lord. Say the rosary. God asks you something simple. I don't know if that's what God is asking you. I know what God is asking me. What has God asked you? Well, God's never asked me for anything. Oh, yes, he has. Read the book. He wrote you all sorts of letters asking you to be mindful of the poor and to be good to one another and to, to love him and to love your neighbor. I mean, God has asked you for a few simple things. Do them, and then he'll lead you on to greater things. So this idea of simplicity, that, that uh, Naman thought he was worth better than that, and uh, uh, the relatives of Jesus thought that they were worth better than Jesus, and guess what? No, you're not. God loves simplicity. And God appeared among us as a simple carpenter. And God works in our lives working miracles through simple things. So if God has asked you to do something, do it. Don't tell God the great things you're going to do for him. Say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Ask him. I, I, you know, if you think God has never asked you to do anything, ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do for you? Do you ever pray that way? I know I, when I pray, I always say, tell God what I want him to do for me. But what, what, what does God want you to do for him? Ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do for you? Can I, can I do something for you, Lord? What do you want? It's that simple. All right, let us go to a break. We'll come back with letters, uh, and we'll open the phones at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Lord, what do you want me to do for you? How can I help you today? Battling Addictions? Our sponsor, St. Gregory Recovery Center, can help you or a loved one live a substance-free life. Information at RelevantRadio.com slash Gregory. That's RelevantRadio.com slash Gregory. you got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. Well, Got to spread joy. And, oh, we're the em emphasizing the positive here. Down to the minimum. Yes, it will be spring someday. It certainly isn't spring where I am at the moment, but it will be spring someday. All right, let's go to letters. Okay. I have a, this is a letter that's kind of confusing to me from Anne. One of the one of the mitzvahs is to redeem the firstborn sons. Um, later, 
when the new Christians debate whether Greeks must be circumcised to follow the way, it is decided they do not need to be circumcised. I believe this decision means that all the other mitzvahs, like redeeming the firstborn, is also not the burden of Christians. The circumcision decision meant that 603 laws from the Old Testament do not apply to Christians. This is why it's such a big deal. How did Jesus fulfill this mitzvah? Well, I, I, I suppose the case can be made for this. Um, but but how did Jesus fulfill the mitzvah of circumcision? Circumcision is thought by scholars to be a symbolic uh, um, human sacrifice. Remember, Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. And this was a common thing in ancient Canaanite religion. Uh, that that uh, you returned the firstborn to the Lord literally by, well, sacrificing him. And uh, circumcision, uh, as a sign of the covenant, was is thought of by many scholars as a symbolic human sacrifice, the generative organ and the shedding of blood. Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. So on the cross, he fulfills that, that uh, symbolic human sacrifice by the actual sacrifice of his life. And, you know, we don't like to think about that because sacrifice, you know, the, the killing of, of uh, a life form, be it a, be it a pigeon or a cow or uh, heaven forbid, the human being is so removed from us until you start thinking about abortion. So, yeah, and I, I think that that is an interesting idea. You know, we're happy to sacrifice a human life for our convenience, just not to the gods. All right. Okay. This is uh, uh, Mary from Houston asked, is it okay to throw a religious type of Christmas cards and other types of Christmas cards for missionaries? Yes, it is. They are pieces of paper. They are not intrinsically sacred. You can throw them out. Uh, the the idea of, of, well, this is a holy thing. I can't throw it out. It's only holy and it's a blessed even a blessed item not consecrated i'm not talking about the blessed sacrament certainly not or things of that nature but a, a sacramental only maintains its its blessing and its its special status as long as it maintains its purpose so you are perfectly free free to throw out old christmas cards even if they are from made by pious monks so Go for it, Mary. All right, that's uh, um, one thing there. Let's see here now. Um, uh, let's see. I was this morning. I was listening to the daily reading. The Gospels were different. Hallow the Gospel. Of, Hallow had the Gospel of John. USCCB had the Gospel of Matthew. Is there an alternate reading for today? Well, I don't know which day today is, but what you find is. There are alternate readings, not for Sundays. Uh, very rarely would there be an alternate for Sunday. Uh, but um, weekday masses, there's more flexibility. And if there's sometimes a reading appropriate to the feast day, it might be the feast of St. Dymphna. And a community has a special devotion to St. Dymphna. And they may use a gospel that's appropriate for virgin martyrs. Or they may use the, the, the reading that's in the calendar put forward by the local bishops. So um, uh, that's that's the reason for the variations. So don't be confused by them. All right, let me take another letter here. All right. 
All right. Um, the the uh, this person is Wayne. I'm looking for some material to defend the church that was submerged in a recent article in the local newspaper that banned the Mission Santa Cruz, that blamed the Mission Santa Cruz. We were, we were talking about that. I I, I don't know if this is. Um, I'm reading the same letter a second time, but uh, a wonderful one is Journey to the Sun, which is the the. Uh, uh, story of uh, Juniper, uh, Brother Juniper Serra, Junipero Serra. So I would recommend that uh, Journey to the Sun. So uh, that's a good one about the, the missions there. All right, let's see here. Recently, my mom's friend died. She was Jewish. Um, she watched her funeral and burial online. I asked her what she thought of the funeral and said it was different. I like ours much better. She intrigued she was intrigued with the burial her husband uh, threw in a few shovels of dirt and then the rest of it they pitch in finally my question is that a jewish custom for the family is to fill the grave uh if so uh, did it come from the old testament times um you know i, I don't know that it's I, you know i don't know that there's a, a particular i can't think of a particular old testament law but for many people it is the custom for the family to actually, or people are close to the deceased, to fill in the grave. And we believe that it is important. Uh, one of our corporal works of mercy is to bury the dead. And it's very interesting that, that even after a, a Jewish person has is dead and buried a long time, if someone comes to pay their respects and pray at the grave, which Jews do, uh they will put a stone on 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 the grave or on the on the on the memorial stone that's there they're continuing to participate in the burying of the dead in other words they bury the dead years <laughs> continuously from the day of the burial until as long as there are people who remember that that burial so this is um, i think a custom that we get from the jews the idea that it is a uh, uh, a work of mercy to bury the dead all right. I hope that helps. And it certainly is biblical. Abram, of course, buried his wife, Sarah. It's a very important part of the Bible. All right. Um, this is from Peggy, who um, was listening to the show and heard me mention the watchman's uh, watchmaker's daughter. Um, so I, I would like to mention that again. I've just started reading it. Uh, it's uh, the story of Corey Ten Boom, who was a, a the first certified woman clock repair person in Holland, and she became famous for uh, defending uh, and the, the the Jewish people against the Nazis. So um, uh, a lot of a lot of. Uh, um, great heroes that are never talked about. And um, uh, also, Peggy mentions Edith Stein and companions on the way to Auschwitz. Um, uh, I, I'm going to have to read that book. It, it sounds very, very interesting. Uh, um, I knew people who, who knew Edith Stein, and uh, she's truly a great woman, uh, saint Either Stein now. All right, let's let's look here. Could you please please explain the different words used for hell in the Bible and how they correspond? Does Revelation twenty fourteen describe two different hells? Also, I've heard the case for annihilation of the soul rather than eternal torment. 
based off rabbinic teaching and the concept of Gehenna. What are your thoughts? No, we don't believe in, in the d destruction of the soul. The soul is immortal. And, and um, uh, there were people who have taught the idea of the annihilation of the soul because they really can't cope with the idea that God would allow someone to suffer eternally. And remember what the word eternal means. It, is, it means timeless, without time. We think of eternity as moment after moment after moment ad nauseum. It's a different perception and experience of reality. And you see, the problem with God, one of the many problems with God, is that he allows us our freedom. If you're a parent, you wish you didn't have to allow your children's freedom to make themselves miserable, but you do. After they're 18, they are quite legally capable of, of ruining their own lives without your help. Um, that's a very crazy-making thing in our lives, that, that we, we, we can't force our children to be happy. Neither does the Father in Heaven force His children to be happy. And if I choose to be eternally miserable, then that's who I will be. This may sound very odd, but no one is in Hell who has not chosen to be there. Well, that's crazy. No one would choose to be in hell. Um, what is hell but separation from God? I mean, I've shared that with you. We're talking about the tree of life. Uh, Adam and Eve touched the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, let us cast them out of the garden, lest they touch the tree of life and live forever. He was not simply being mean. To live eternally, to live timelessly in a state of alienation from God, that's hell. And there are most certainly people who choose to live alienated from God's love. Uh, in the, the great classic work, uh, Paradise Lost by Milton, uh, he puts into the devil's mouth the words, I would rather reign in hell than bend the knee in heaven. And there are lots of people of that opinion. And uh, God allows us to choose hell. And I don't want him to do that. I want everything to be nice. I want everybody to get the also-ran trophy. But God respects our freedom. And and I think that's an important thing to understand. Um, so, you know, there's, there is, let's see, Revelation 2014. I have to look that up. You know, I should have the whole thing memorized after all these years, but I don't. So we'll look it up, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll comment perspicaciously all right okay death and hades let's see here come on open 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 all right then death and hades were thrown to the lake of fire the lake of fire is the second death okay what does this mean <clears throat> death and hell are cast into the lake of fire this is the second death Understand that Hades did not mean what we mean by hell. Hades was the, wor the world of the shades, the world of the dead, uh, kind of a shadowy underworld where people had sort of a, uh, a sort of life as a shade. They talk about the shades and, and death itself will be destroyed and hell, Hades, this underworld will be destroyed. The lake of fire is what the Romans would have called Tartarus, a place of eternal torment for the very bad. And uh, most people just went to Hades, the underworld, which was colorless and, and boring and very unpleasant. Not punishment, just it wasn't life. 
It was a shadow life. That will all be destroyed, this this shadow world. And, and uh, uh, you know, I don't pretend to understand this because I've only lived in this world and I'm not terribly mystical. But the idea of dying, you know, leaving one dimension, going to another, that will be over. Uh, that you can't pass from the underworld to heaven to this world any longer. Uh, death in Hades, the people will no longer die. And there will no longer be this limbo of of the dead, Hades. There will be the eternal flames prepared for the devil and his angels, as Scripture says elsewhere. So I hope that that uh, explains. uh, I suppose it is two different kinds of hell. Well, speaking of that, let's go to a break. We'll come back with our word of the day. And uh, we'll open. Well, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. Our sponsor, the University of Dallas, provides a rigorous liberal arts education that forms the whole person for wisdom, truth, and virtue. Learn more about The Catholic University for Independent Thinkers at RelevantRadio.com forward slash Dallas. Father Simon Says. What a way to make a living insulting people. I'm kidding. On Relevant Radio. Well, I've never been so insulted in my life. Well, it's early yet. Oh, good news. Good news. The chariot's coming. Good news. Good news. The chariot's coming. So glad. So glad. Chariots are coming, and I don't want it to leave me behind. Well, good news. Chariots are coming. All right, let's go to the word of the day. This, I, I don't think this is going to be edifying at all, but I, I saw that in the translation uh, that Naaman set out taking ten silver talents, six thousand gold pieces, and ten festal garments. Festal? When was the last time you just said, I'm going to go to my closet and put on my festal garment? What in the name of sweet heavenly glory is festal? Well, I looked up festal, and uh, I couldn't find it in the text. Let me see, where did I put the text? No, oh, dear, where did I put the text? You know, my computer just decides to This is the worst things... day of my life. No, it's The worst day of your not. life it's so really far. Isn't. The text actually says 10, Esher, and then it says uh, Halipot, which means changes, uh, 10 changes of clothing. Um, it doesn't really mention festal. I mean, uh, the, the next word is, I think, what's the next word here? I think it's Beged, uh, which is a very odd word. It can... I think it is actually it can it can mean clothing, or actually treachery. Very odd. Uh, I don't understand why it means both treachery and clothing, but well, it does. So it's any kind of covering, covering or wrapping. Uh, it doesn't mention festal. If there's a real scholar out there, I'd love to know why they translated festal garments. Maybe it's just implied because. Ten changes of clothing. That would be a lot of clothing. This was an era in which people wore clothes that were handmade. 
uh, cloth was very, very valuable. That's why uh, they cast lots for Jesus' garments, because cloth was valuable. Uh, um, that was one of my, my objections. You know, I, I talk a lot about um, this series, The Chosen, and I think it's a wonderful series. But there are just some details that, that well, that aren't accurate. For instance, when they're nailing up circulars and, and passing out flyers, they did not do that in the ancient world because paper was so valuable. If you want in Rome, I don't know if they did this in in the Holy Land among the Jews, but in Rome, if you wanted to uh, to make a flyer, you just painted it on the wall. It's graffiti. It was it was a common thing to do. Are you kidding? Election me? notices? No, I'm not kidding you. It was very common. Very, you just put graffiti on the wall, and then they'd whitewash the wall when they were sick of it. So. Um, but they didn't tack paper up. Paper was so expensive. Clothing, the same thing, was so expensive. That's why ripping the garments. That's why in the reading, the king of Israel rips his garments. That this was a gesture of 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 great grief because you were destroying something very valuable. Uh, so it just, as far as I can tell, it just says ten changes of clothing, and I'm kind of wondering why they put festal in. So if anyone is a real scholar, I'd love to know why it's festal. So. Um, it refers to any kind of clothing. All right. Well, that said, let's go to the let's go to phone calls. Hello. Hello. First one we got here is Maria calling in from New Jersey. Maria, what can I do for you? Hi, Father Simon. Uh, well, I've been reading the Bible and I've come to Luke chapter twenty-six to fifty-six, and I have always been taught as a child all the way up that. Mary's relationship to Elizabeth was that of a cousin. Yes. And the Bible in Luke 26 to 56 says that Elizabeth was her aunt. What? What, what, what is the citation, actually? It's Luke 2? It says, uh, it's Luke uh, 20, uh, exactly where that's at is... Uh, what chapter, yes? 36. It's second chapter. It's, it's second 36. chapter, right? Uh-huh. But the chapter, it's chapter 2, verse 36, the chapter, right? It's chapter 1. Oh, chapter 1. I got my chapter, so hold on. Mm-hmm. Let me. No, the word I'm quite convinced uh, is syngenis. And the syngenis means kinswoman. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it doesn't, it could mean aunt, but it, it generally didn't. Let, let me see here. Let me see here. Uh, that's kind of, it just is the generic word for relative. Uh, so why would they why 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 would they translate it aunt? That's kind of interesting. It's just yeah. Guinness. I've, I've read the Bible means, a few times, and I never picked up on this. Yeah. This is the first no, that's time. kind of an odd translation. Maybe because she was older, they they decided to translate it aunt. It could be an aunt. I mean, an aunt is a kinswoman. It's Sun Guinness means from the same family. That's what it means. So it doesn't. Sun is with, and Guinness means you're. you're no, it does not. But why would the they say "aunt" specifically in the Bible? Because that's what the translator probably saw in his Bible study book when he was seven. Translating is very difficult because, in translating, it is almost impossible to weed out your own prejudices and preconceptions. It's a very difficult thing to to translate something exactly. Uh, um, so. It just means from the same family, from the same stock. That's all it means. 
and this person probably had been told by his grandmother she was his aunt because she was older. She could have been an older cousin. She could have been a second cousin twice removed. It doesn't specify the exact relationship. So I hope that helps. Yes, it does. But I wish they hadn't well, said aunt because that's screwing my mind up. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, now you All know. Right. Now you know better. All right. Yes. God bless. Thanks All for right. calling in. Okay. okay. Let's you. go. Bye-bye. Let's go to Mark from Eureka, California. Hello, Father. Uh, yes. Yeah, my a rabbi told me that Moshe went up to Mount Sinai three times. The people told yeah. him to look to the mountain three times, and the first time was for the Levites, and then the people said. We want our law, too, and Moses considered it, realized they were right, and then went back up to get them, their, the common people, their law. What is he, does it say that in the Torah, or is that Talmud, or what's he oh, talking about? That would probably be Talmudic. Oh, let me, let me, let me, let me look up Moses going up the mountain. You see, he went up at one point with the elders of Israel. The first time he went up uh, to get the law. And this is Scott Hahn's interpretation, which my friend Rabbi Lefkowitz, may he rest in peace, uh, disagrees with wholeheartedly. He went up and got the law, the Ten Commandments. And then he came down and there was uh, uh, the Israelites were dancing around the golden calf with Edward G. Robinson, as seen in the movie uh, Moses and the Ten Commandments. And he broke the tablets of the law and he went up to get he went back up the mountain to get uh, to get the. the law again and he came down with more commandments when when you don't obey god's commandments he doesn't bargain with you and give you less he he gives you more uh so uh um, oh, different okay uh, yeah so so that this now this is the the interpretation that dr hunt uh had that uh moses came down with the 613 commandments of the law first time 10 then 613 they needed more law and then he went up and ate and drank in the with the with the elders of Israel in the presence of the Lord so you know the 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 interpretation of that talmudically is different uh so that's as i understand it and oh I, i'm wondering why i'm not i'm hitting the wrong keyboard as i'm trying to figure this out Oh, Gavalt, as we say in Skokie. So does that's how I look at it. Have I even touched on the question you're asking? Okay, so it is kind of in the Torah that when he went up to the mountain with the elders, that was the third time or something. Is what yes, you're saying? Yes, that would. Yes, uh, yes. The the the. Uh, let's see. Um, it, it looks like three times in, in Exodus 19. So the first, uh, uh, the first ascent was after the Exodus, uh, and he comes back down. Uh, that's Exodus nineteen two to seven. Then, then uh, of course I'm looking at the site I just pulled up, and then uh, um, he, he goes back up the mountain, and God offers to make Moses a great people, and Moses says, "No way." And so the second ascent is uh, in Exodus nineteen verse eight. Uh, and then the third ascent is, uh, let's see here, the third ascent, oh gosh, oh, and there's a fourth ascent, apparently, uh, a fifth ascent, this, this, this says sixth ascent, so this, this has uh, Moses going up six times, I'd have to 
goodness. And then seven, eight. Apparently Moses went up the mountain a lot of times. It's very confusing because it doesn't seem to delineate these very well in Scripture. But uh, uh, actually, there are many, there are quite a number of times that Moses goes up the mountain because he's negotiating a covenant between God and the people. So, yes, go on. Well, well I wondered if he didn't include the breaking of the tables and going back up again as one time. I didn't know what he was referring be. to myself. Yeah, but well, I, it, it I gets a little confusing. Breaking, I was told by a Protestant that breaking the tables was symbolic that man can't keep the law. And that was an interesting interpretation of that. But Yeah, it, it is. You know, Scripture will bear a lot of interpretations. But um, uh, apparently, according to this reckoning uh, that I'm looking at, there were Moses went up up the uh, the mountain eight times, so that's kind of interesting. So I hope that helps a little. I, we could, I could detail them that that Exodus nineteen, uh, verse uh, two through eight is the first ascent, and then the second ascent is Exodus nineteen verse eight. Uh, the third ascent is Exodus nineteen ten. And the fourth ascent is Exodus nineteen twenty to twenty five. The fifth is Exodus twenty to twenty one, and then Exodus twenty four verse one is the sixth. And then uh, the let's see here, the seventh is Exodus thirty two verse thirty two, and the eighth is Exodus thirty four one to two. If you, you listen to the podcast and get them all and study them, and then you can tell me. But uh, yeah, Moses went up the mountain quite a number of times if you parse it that way in Scripture. So I hope that helps a little. Okay, okay, Father, were the All 10 right. statements part of the 613 mitzvah? Or? Oh, yes, they would be part of the 613, the, 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 ten, the 10 words, yeah. So, well, I hope that helps a little. Golly, it's kind of interesting. Boy, that's tough stuff. Joe from, from Chicago, are you with us, Joe from Chicago? Yes, I am, Padre. Um, how Hi, does one do feel more at, at church, how do you feel more like emotionally or spiritually in the presence of God? I mean, I understand it intellectually, but you're there and I just feel like I should have some other emotion other than, yes, I'm here and I'm saying the prayers. Why? <laughs> I mean, this is an int- I'm, I'm being a little, a little uh, devil's advocate here. Mother Teresa... Uh, didn't feel a darn thing for much of her life. And people said, oh, she really didn't believe. On the contrary, remember, to believe means to trust. And the fact that she persisted in doing what she believed God wanted to do, even though she didn't feel like it, that was love and that was faith. You know, uh, I I assume, are you the father of a family? Yeah. Yeah. Every day you bounce out of bed, ready to go to work even the coldest days of the year because you're doing it for your children and you just feel overwhelming love for your wife and children yeah right <laughs> you do it when when you don't feel it but you do it that's love you know c.s lewis in the screw tape letters has this whole thing about god wants us to be spiritual the devil is fine if we feel spiritual the devil, God wants us to be generous. The devil is content if we feel generous. You see the difference? That yeah. we are such a romantic people. Americans, we think we're hard-nosed realists. We're, we're total romantics. If we don't feel it, it's not real. So, so the feelings of religion are gifts from God. And I don't think you can simulate or force a religious emotion. 
but you can say, Lord, I'm here. I'm trusting you. I'm here. I'm obeying you even when I don't feel like it. So when you don't feel like it and you're sitting there in church and uh, it's a long, boring sermon from someone like me and you feel even less like being there when, than when you walked in, this is real virtue. Does this help a little? It helps out a lot. It helps out a lot. I always felt like I should be coming out of there, like out of some evangelical rally or something like that. But no, you. this helps out a lot that I'm basically doing the right thing. And You're that's doing what, the that's right what thing, yes, and that pleasing to God. So that's an important idea. Well, God bless you, Joe, and thanks for calling in. Let's go to Joseph real quickly. I just have a few seconds. Uh, Joseph from Danbury, are with you. Are yes, we, and Father, what can I do for you, Joseph? Yes. Hi there, Father. I'd like to know the difference between a confraternity and uh, a sodality. Oh, good grief. Uh, I, I, I think, a, I, I don't know. I, the, a confraternity means an organization for a, a purpose. And I think, I, I, if I recall, a, a sodality is, is uh, uh, um, an organization gathered around prayer. So one is, I think, a confraternity has to do with a task, and, and uh, 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 sodality has to do with a religious association gathered around prayer. That's, as I recall it from my youth, but we barely use those words anymore. Uh, I'll look it up, and if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll, I'll retract tomorrow. But stay tuned, because Drew is coming up, and he need retract nothing. Nothing.